welcome to the Sound in Marketing podcast. Today, we pick up where we left off talking about sensory perception with Alejandro Salgado of Atriana. We pick up in the middle of explaining the sensory elements in brand packaging. A few years ago, with one of my colleagues, Carlos Velasco, who's a professor at the BEI Norwegian Business School, we did our PhD together. We were, we were thinking about um, sort of um, a problem, which is what um, we were talking about packaging, which was how do we help uh, sort of marketing and industry practitioners to think about the senses in a sort of, uh, sort of mixed up way, not just one or, or the other, but how they're just sort of converging together to create a single experience. So we wrote a, a little paper for SMR, which is the European Society of Market Research. And it's very big, so they, they, they have a lot of sort of members in it. And it, it's called the four moments of experience. And what we basically explained was how you can have sort of uh, a moment, which is how you detect the product, then how you think about buying it, then how you experience using or consuming the product, and then how you dispose of it or disconnect from it. And when I mean dispose or disconnect is different when you have like, say, a yogurt and you throw the packaging away or you have headphones. You're not going to throw your headphones away, just kind of put them in your pocket or something. So when you have these four experiences, instead of thinking about the typical moments of truth, what you think about is what are the sensory elements that need to be part of the packaging that um, need to be there in order to have that impact. And so we built the whole thing around it. And, and it was very successful. Like I think that we've applied it in about 25 countries. And uh, it was shortlisted by the WIRC, which is sort of like a huge industry database as one of the picks for that for that year among all the papers in the world and uh, among, among all the papers in the, in the conference. So it was really good. And then we've used it a lot for teaching. So we got students in about nine countries reading the, the paper for about like three, four years now. So we've got about 800, 900 students that have already sort of kind of gone through it and said, oh, this is useful when they go out and then become brand managers or, or designers or things like that. So I think there's a huge opportunity as well for for entrepreneurs, for companies to think, well, how can I design the packaging of my product? Not only to make it look pretty or to say, oh, that's nice, but to actually tell a story about what's inside the product and what the brand wants to, to how the one brand wants to connect with, with people. I think you hit the, the nail on the head with tell a story. Uh, and when we, when we respond to story, we're, when we're told a story, we're experiencing more than just that that sound, the vocal, like say, say it's a, a story that your mother's telling you at bedtime, you're, you're listening, you're hearing, but you're also, there's so much going on in your head. I've been practicing my weekly writing on medium to get a little stronger. And I just released one about the question of marketers and how they would sell to kids based on the aisle strolling, you know, like you go through the aisle and you see the toys and you get to touch and manipulate and turn around and say, I want. Well, now as a mother myself, I don't like taking my kids to the store and it's not a fun thing to do. It's in, out, done. Uh, so they're not there anymore. They're not experiencing this. So, you know, my, my call to action is what are all the senses associated with these toys, with these brands? How are you going to market when the the aisle strolling option is gone? Uh, and I think that that's a really good argument to explore the narrative of your brand's senses. Oh, for sure. For sure. And I, I think you've hit the nail as well in, in terms of what 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 the world looks like right now that we are a bit more sort of e-commerce based virtual 
And 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 again, like as as the pandemic sort of becomes more complicated to understand, at least. Um, and and for parents, they're saying, well, do I need to take take my kid outside for this or not? Or to right. So one thing is to go out and play. The other one is to actually just put them inside a store. Um, and, and and with all the sort of difficulties of the uh, idiosyncrasies to call them of each parent, each person in there, uh, whether they wear a mask or not, and, and all these problems. But when you see the packaging, and, and the more you, you think about the packaging, not as a thing you put there for people to see and then buy, but as a whole experience. And, and, you, and you look at how, for example, when we were little, I'm not sure you, but I, I would keep the packaging a few few months until my mom would force me to throw it away because I was hoarding uh and it's like how many do you have like seriously right and and it was because the packaging was cool and because it, it kind of in some way represented the ideal of what you wanted to do when you play the sort of the the desert with my I remember my G.I. Joes then which, which were kind of a whole, like the crazy super fashionable thing for male kids right with the whole stereotype of, of you being a guy being little and all that right I think that's changed a lot but um but you had this sort of idea that the packaging was, was kind of giving you the idea of how you should play with it or or what was the imaginary world where your gi joe's or your i remember it was poly pocket or the um oh yes poly pocket crazy and then and, and you got uh they, they were mighty max remember as well as and legos and things like that those are really cool i i still because i still work with 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 kids categories i still remember like and i have to go keep track of everything so when you look at that the, the packaging is, is part of the story and the packaging is part of the experience and and the kid is trying to say well how do i get to the point where it looks as cool as the packaging right so it's irrelevant if you're not there going crazy at the store but obviously if i just think the packaging is a thing getting moms and dads to get get the, the toy well then i've failed because and when it gets home, it's going to get thrown away immediately. And what I want as a, pack, as, as a designer, as a creator of a, of, a, of a packaging experience is for mom and dad to say, oh, man, how many of these packages are lying around here? What? That's crazy. And I think obviously for parents, that's 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 annoying as a designer of an experience. That's what you want. Right. You want the kid to fight and say, nope, I'm not going to throw it away. And, 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 and he's going to cry and he's going to say, like, no, I don't want to. But if that doesn't happen, then your packaging sucks, basically. It's. Terrible. <laughs> well, I think of I think of cereal boxes too. I grew up where you were like eating your cereal and you were like doing the maze that's on there. And uh, I think it's still happening. I always buy the like you know the Costco size boxes, so I don't really look at them anymore. But that was part of the experience. The other part was the toy at the bottom. You had to eat all the cereal to get to the bottom. So it's like that that box was really really important. So I, I definitely hear you on um, and imagine on that. like for cereals what it, what it was when they started to say well. Let's not just go with the typical sort of um, corn or or whatever wheat thing you had there. You just have the photo. But then they started playing with things like Fruit Loops and Lucky Charms and things like that. And you had shapes and you had colors, which was mind blowing. And imagine the packaging didn't show that. You're like, oh, this is mm. cereal. Imagine it couldn't convey the experience of just putting them in there and um, the colors and the things. Imagine what what the whole marketing between the 90s and the and, and 2000s would have been like if Lucky Charms can say, oh, we've created a new shape. And you'd be like, wow, a new shape. When you look at it in, in retrospect, you're like, what do I care, right? They all taste the same. But it was awesome. Or if M&Ms couldn't show you the colors, they all taste kind of the same. But there's an, there's an experience there where, where flavor is much more than, than just what it tastes like. There's color and there's, there's an idea. And you can see the kids and, and you can even imagine... 
like the way they think if they're separating, sorting out their Skittles and M&Ms or they're eating them like by bunch loads. It's so different when, when you look at them. Um, and I think that is part of why packaging is so important. It's telling them, look, this is what's going to happen before they've even tried it, before they even know what it is. So much unpacked there. It's so cool. I love it. Um, is there any, um, is there anything that you, that you would love to see more of uh, utilized through sensory marketing? Like, is there, is there something that you're seeing out there that's not fully happening yet that you're like, oh, if they just thought about this a little bit more, it could be so amazing. For one, I, I think there's still a lot. So I've, I think I've analyzed what about, um, about 1500 packaging since January. So that's kind of insane. Not, obviously not by myself, not I like eyeing through them because I would go nuts, but the algorithms and, and, and the team. When you look at all these packages, uh, one of the things that really drives me nuts is how they still, like you get all the data and you show them, look, this is, this this color doesn't go, you know, or or, or be careful with the colors you choose now because then if you have seven flavors, you're going to have a mess at trying to convey seven flavors if you start picking the wrong colors with your first flavor and then you go with that and you think it's like a simple thing but then when they come back to you two or three years later you're like oh this is such a mess and the way to solve it was three years ago when you launched your first flavor and they don't do it so this whole idea that it's like if the consumer says they love it then you can launch it and the answer is well that might tell you what they think about it but it won't tell you if it's practical from a strategic point of view thinking about not only whether the design sells and makes sense immediately, but whether the design makes sense in the future is important. I think and that's something that even big brands are sort of screwing up sometimes. I'm not titling, I'm not saying all of them, but I've worked in, in three, four continents and you can still see it sometimes and say, well, what, what happened there? And I think that's a, that's a difficult one. I hope you're enjoying the show. For more on Sound & Marketing, check out soundandmarketing.com. This is where I house all the good stuff, like articles that I reference, media that I'm a part of, courses on sound's power and influence in marketing, and pretty much everything else that has to do with sound in marketing. For sound strategy and sonic branding creation, my company, Dreamer Productions, would love to chat with you. Check out the end of the episode for contact information or check out the show notes from this episode. We would love to help you make sound on purpose. Now back to the show. And I think the other the other key thing is imagery. So when when you think about imagery, you think imagery is put a nice photo there, about like a smiley kid with a I don't know having a bite of the cookie or whatever. And we think th that's imagery, but it's so cool how scientists like Coslin and Charles Pence and Sofia de Juan and, uh, and Olivia Petit and, and ESG in France and Carlos Velasco in in, in the BI, uh, Janice Wang in in, um, in Denmark in Aarhus University and our own team, how we've shown systematically that uh, mental images can be multisensory. You call it an image because of, of lack of a better word or lack of imagination. Sometimes we scientists kind of uh, go with the flow too much, but we call them mental images, but we can have a mental image of us, of, of a smell or a sound or a texture or a sort of a, a bodily sensation, right? Like a, how when you're like watching a horror movie, maybe your, your hairs go like stand up or, or things like that. What you want when you design something, and, and, and it could be just a photograph to sell an apartment or the front of a packaging or the mood in a hotel or a restaurant or even your home. When you enter it, what do you see? And what is kind of the sense, the mental images that are generated by that? We are too obsessed by being literal in the design of the product. 
And, and I think that the actual story as of how the brain then captures that, that reality, and how we then sort of by capturing that, we recreate something in our mind based on our experience, based on our desires, our needs, our, our biases, and then we see it. And I think there we have so much yet to exploit in terms of experiences. And don't get me going of that in the classroom, but for kids in classrooms, virtually or physically. And like if, we are, if there is a place where we have not explored how mental images and how sensory experience is important is the classroom. Yes, there are teachers that are wonderful at doing it, but it's more like a discrete situation where there's a teacher that understood it, kind of like a chef, like a great chef. You've got a bunch of people cooking and burning things up and making a mess in the kitchen. And then you've got some really cool a sort of uh, teachers and professors doing things like it's very subtle but it's very simple but if you sit in their lectures sometimes in the and it's not they don't even have to be very tech but the way they talk you're like wow i've been transported somewhere else it's like reading a, a story from a book like a philip pullman from the golden compass or jk rowling with harry potter and that's kind of what we want in the packaging in the classroom when you when you get home and it's so difficult now to think about that and then and i think that that is something that that will kind of be groundbreaking uh, very soon well good luck with that <laughs> <laughs> fingers crossed <laughs> well because i'm just i'm all, i'm just thinking and and I'll, I'll stay off of my soapbox, but I'm just thinking the senses are so universal and yet they're so personal at the same time. How do you figure out the global sensations uh, and, and keep in mind that people are going to have individual experiences that are completely off kilter from all of that? And I love what you're saying because it's, it's, it's one of the things I always start with in my, I, have a, I used to teach a class called multi-sensory product design. And it's something I also tell my team a lot. And it's, how do we deal with subjectivity? And, and if subjectivity is so important, why are there so many universal brands that are so successful, right? Like McDonald's and uh, mm -hmm. Spotify and uh, Netflix and, and right in so many categories where you say, well, if we are so subjective and so different, what, why is it that, that you've got fans of specific movies and why is it Disney so successful in creating that sort of experience systematically at its sort of theme parks or at its movies? And, and, and that's one of those questions that it's not easy to, to answer. But I think what, what you get to is you've got sort of two types of moments you really want to, to become memorable. You want moments that, for example, if you're in love or, or you want to surprise your kids or, or your family, it's about something very specific. And then you have to think about brands that in some way enable you to sort of, sort of personalize or to tailor that experience. So it's not about the product. It's about how you use it and when you use it and, 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 and sort of the, the, the timing of using the product. So providing the consumer, the, the, the client with the experience, the possibility of saying, I'm going to buy this wine in this way. But some brands are very rigid. So you, you buy your sparkling wine to celebrate your anniversary. And it's kind of, well, yeah, it's sparkling wine. But what could a brand do to help you sort of become more... Um, that, that your subjectivity is more included in the experience, which would be extremely powerful as a, as a brand value. So it's not that you have to cater to each individual, but that you have to think about how you can provide flexibility in the way you approach the brand to create that individuality by having a universal experience. Uh, so that's one. But then you go to the other side and you say, no, nope, I don't want that. I want something where my experience is so awesome that no one or question how amazing it is, no matter how subjective you are, no matter whether your politics are right or left or center. And if, if you've got um, 
for example, a, a difference in, in what you like, you, you don't like sweet things or, or, or this or that. And if you get there, then you have something truly amazing. And, and when you look at, for example, chefs, I used to work with, with a chef, a couple of chefs who, who worked at a lot of Michelin uh, star restaurants. And I asked him once, well, what's your favorite ingredient? And now I know it's kind of a lame question, but he gave me a really clever answer. He said, well, hunger, of course, is the best ingredient, <laughs> right? Uh, yeah. And then, and then I said, well, there's things that I don't like. I don't, I don't like some things that no, I think everyone likes everything. You just kind of have to teach them how to love them, how to like things, right? So I told them, I, I don't really enjoy this, this vegetable. And he said, let me cook it for you. And I said, no, actually, I do like this vegetable. I just didn't know how to cook it properly, at least for me, uh-huh. right? So what makes that specific chef so masterful, so good, isn't really that he has some, some sort of um, magic wand that makes you say, wow, this is amazing. But it's, it's kind of his, his ability to be very consistent in understanding how to develop something that is appealing to most people. That's what we call advertisement and what we call marketing. At least it's what we should call that. But sometimes we get so caught up in doing what we need to do that we forget that we need to think not about cultural differences. Oh, it has to be different because it's Colombia in South America or the US, right? Or he's, oh, it's the East Coast or the West Coast. You say, come on, can't we do something powerful enough so we don't have to worry about that? And usually what you'll get is middle management will tell you, nope, it's not possible because they've always been sort of trapped in that level, looking at the same countries, looking at the same problems and looking at the differences from the outside. But if you go higher up, the, the more powerful your understanding, the more you'll try to say, well, can we have just one packaging for this whole region, for the whole world? And the answer for so many brands that are successful is, of course, we can, because otherwise it would be insanely costly. It would be insanely difficult. And it would kind of lose the whole point of having a universal human experience. So we've been obsessed by looking at differences. I think it's been a bit of a, a Western sort of thought of the more individualistic you are, the more special you are, the more successful, the more happy you are than course, the more you consume. Uh, and then we transfer that to the idea that because we are so unique, then it's not possible for brands and for experiences to be collective and to be human. They have to be Gina, Alejandro, or whoever. And maybe perhaps we've, we've gone overboard with the whole idea of uniqueness and uh, subjectivity. And I think big brands tell you the opposite. The message is different. Yes, there is locality. They adapt to it. But in the end, a lot of it is the same. And it works really, really well. Well, on that, I think that's a that's a great way to wrap up. The answer is, we don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but it's absolutely fascinating. And I think that these conversations need to happen, whether or not we find the answer to life, the universe, and everything, 42. It just has to be explored. And I really, really appreciate your time today, breaking it down with me and talking all these things it's been really really fun it's it was awesome and and i love the way you kind of uh, brought so many interesting topics uh, together for our conversation i really enjoyed it and it made me think a lot about what i'm doing and and where i want to get to and hopefully a lot of our audience got inspired as to to think that sensory experiences are not only about what you can do in a lab or as an expert but about how you can sort of change the way you see your life every day or, or the way you think about why you like the things you like, what makes it so special. And I think that's awesome. Sensory experiences, it's, it's something for everyone. Thank you again so much for your time. I had a lot of fun. Don't forget to subscribe.
subscribe on all the major podcast channels. Share with friends, follow, and rate. Spread the word because, well, more people should know about this stuff. I know you know that now. For those of you wanting more information on how sonic branding and sound marketing can be utilized within your brand, my company, Dreamer Productions, would love to help you out. We create, consult, and help strategize on how sound can be a more active presence in your marketing. We help you make sound on purpose. For inquiries, go to dreamerproductions.com. That's D-R-E-A-M-R productions.com and send us a message. You can also find me, Gina Isham, on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. All links will be provided in the show notes. Let's make this world of sound more intriguing, more unique, and more and more on brand. <laughs>